Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Glad to be joined again by Josh Blank, uh, research director of the Texas Politics Project today. Welcome back, Josh. Thanks for having me. I didn't know if I'd get invited back after such high, <laughs> high-powered, high-profile guests. Well, you know, we're getting we're getting a rhythm together here, you know, and uh, uh, I can fill in. You, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it, the tapestry seems to be evolving here, and I'm yeah. I, I'm fairly happy with that. Um, it's been an interesting week since I recorded last week with Ross Ramsey. Um, you know there were, and we're not going to dwell on a lot of this, but I, I I feel a little obligated to note when things are actually begin to look even a little bit like business as we expect it. Yeah, right. Sure. I mean, actual signs of governing in the legislative branch in Texas this week. House committees had meetings this week um, on some very practical aspects of real issues, including the public ed committee talked some about testing kind of catching up on on things in public ed right now and the state of affairs in public ed. Um, state affairs met and dove pretty deeply into broadband deployment related kind of infrastructure issues in and around the broadband issue and, and a little bit about energy I think came up in some of that. Um, high profile case on death row, Melissa Lucio receives received a stay of execution um, by the Court of Appeals, which I think is going to uh, as I understand it, likely to to result in a review of some of the evidence yeah, in her case it, that had not been. Yeah, I think it gets sent back to the trial court. Right, again. it's been it's been remanded, so that's interesting. Of course, some of the usual hijinks, um, <laughs> as we'll call. It. I mean, I, yeah, we, like Let's... you know, I, I I say that in that way, <laughs> but we'd be disappointed if there weren't probably. Um, you know, both Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick urge the Supreme Court. To issue a ruling on on Attorney General Paxton's appeal to throw out the whistleblower lawsuit against him. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation around this. And, of course, it could be more than one thing that motivated them. Always. Um, you know, on one hand, there's the idea that a ruling in a, cer- in a certain way could rebound to the advantage of everyone in the executive branch. You know, if the outcome is that elected officials are sort of, you know, have some degree of exemption from being the target of whistleblowers and in particular the provisions of the Whistleblower Act. Right. But it also raised a lot of eyebrows in that urging a decision on this, depending on what direction the decision went, could actually not necessarily be good for Attorney General Paxton as he is in the midst of a runoff. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court is, you know... I would say this in the last six to eight months, the state Supreme Court has really not, you know, blazed a very clear trail in terms of how to predict how yeah. they're going to come down on these kinds of things, right? And it's not even clear from 
uh, Abbott and Patrick sort of urging them to take it on, that they're even necessarily pushing for a, an outcome. They're really just pushing for them to take it on, is from what yeah. I understand. So it's a very it's an interesting space. Right. And, you know, and it's not clear to me how long that could take, et cetera. But once again, consistent with several of our previous discussions, uh, border security was in the headlines again and and really tightly wound with some of the major events in state politics and 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 even with national politics. And we just I think we we talked about border security in a, in a different kind of setting, slightly different setting a couple of weeks ago. Um, but a lot of things have gone on since then that have. I think I think added some new dimensionality to the issue and also invite us to drill down a little further than we usually do. So among those things, you know, a federal judge, you know, as everybody noted, a Trump appointed federal judge um, ruled that the, you know, the Biden administration could not end the Title 42 remain in, in Mexico program. And there was some thrashing around about that in the Biden administration uh, about whether to appeal that, and they wound up deciding that they would appeal it. Um, and, and for those of you used to fill in, the Title 42 program is the the provision uh, of the law that allowed the federal government to uh, not permit not permit migrants from entering the United States based on health concerns around COVID. Right. So, you know, the idea is if you're a refugee, you come and you say, I'm, you know, I want to claim refugee status and that goes into a whole process. Normally you would stay in the country while that process right. plays out. Now you stay on the Mexican side of the border. Right. So now, you know, so, you know, often overlaps with the re- reference to the remain in Mexico. Yeah. Program. And the ending of this policy was the stated uh, rationale for Abbott's, uh, you know, sort of comprehensive truck inspection policy right. on the border recently. And, and, and has roiled, you know, politics in D.C. as well. And we talked about this a little bit, I think, a couple weeks ago, because right before Congress was taking a break and this had obstructed um, the passage of of the COVID relief bill, now it's returned. That COVID relief bill, from based on what I've read, seems to be back on track in the Senate. Um, but now there is an effort afoot and a, and a broad expectation that Republicans in, in Congress, and particularly in the House, want to attach the you know a lock or an amendment that would continue the title 42 program to the Ukraine aid package that is pending before the house which is um, not surprisingly a very high priority item so you understand the legislative politics here yeah. there's a good there's a good read in punchbowl news this morning and in a couple of the the major dailies about this for those of you that are that are interested in this as we record this on Wednesday um, but the congressional politics of this, very royal. It's a pretty straightforward calculation, I think, for most re- congressional Republicans. But as as has been the case, very complicated for Democrats. Moderate Democrats want to there's – there's a, certainly a lot of will among moderate Democrats to see the program continue, at least in the short term, and to not have them end it right now. Uh, progressive Democrats – ending the program a pretty a pretty high priority, at least in terms of public positioning. It's certainly, I mean, you know, we'll get into this. I mean, certainly, I don't even know we'll get that deep into this, but the whole, this whole argument over Title 42 and the reactions to its ending and sort of the, again, the, 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 the following politics you're describing here, which we would not describe as like sane policymaking per se around any of this. I mean, it's a really good encapsulation in some way of, you know, the difficulty, or not even the difficulty, you know, I would say the, 
the the poor way in which like as both parties have been able to respond to the immigration issue. I mean, right. you see this, right? And then in part of this and in multiple ways. And the one I'll just point out is the fact that, again, like, you know, this is a pandemic era health policy that's basically being held on to as immigration policy. Right. And that's where I think it just if you just acknowledge that as a starting point, you realize how difficult this is. Right. Well, and Democrats would say, to be fair, you know, this was also played very much as an immigration policy by the Trump administration yeah. when they implemented it. So the two have been. But, that, but that's exactly. But that's I, 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 conflated. Like, exactly. Listen, it's good, right. It's a, it's a good use of the good time to use the word conflation. Right. The conflation of these two policies in in Title 42 politics. Right. Is. Uh, it's almost de facto impossible to extract now. Yeah, and that's and, but in again, a political sense, and that doesn't help anybody if the goal is actually to like move forward on any of these issues. But we'll keep going. Let's keep going. Right, and so of... yeah, yeah. Okay. So Alejandro Mayorkas, the the uh, DHS secretary, is going to be in Congress today again as we record this on Wednesday. They've unveiled a plan that is supposed to be the replacement process for Title 42. Based on what I've read, it's unlikely to please anybody. Well, um, shocker. Yeah, a shocker. But is is sort of the fig leaf, I think, that they are attempting to put forward yeah. in order to end Title 42. But the the memo itself is very important. This is also pointed out in this Punchbowl News thing, but they've got a link to the to the to the plan memo that Mayorkas that is circulating you know, that basically makes the, you know, has the unfortunate position of just being honest about it at one point and saying, this is intractable and we're not going to solve this in the short term without more comprehensive immigration reform. A little bit of a executive branch pushback towards Congress. Yeah. But, you know, not likely to help the politics of the situation. So, and then also we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget this week, big news in the state also that, I, I believe it was a National Guardsman I believe that's right. was killed, drowned in the Rio Grande as part of an attempt to save migrants. Uh, his body was recovered earlier this week. That's also put a pretty grim note on the situation at the, at the border, given that there has been a lot of coverage of you know, less than ideal conditions for the Guardsmen and, uh, that are deployed in, in the region uh, as part of Operation Lone Star. Yeah. And that's one interpretation of that. Yes. So, yes. Now, we've talked a lot about public opinion and the politics around these issues. And I kind of what I'd hope today is we can kind of recover, you know, recap that very quickly um, and talk about maybe what's begin to think about what might be driving this, which is I what I think something we just never quite get to, I think, but in, in part because it's complicated. So basic public opinion situation is. We've talked about a lot. All right. Let's let's do yeah. this as quick as we can. Ready? So looking at our most recent survey in February, 58% of Republicans said that immigration or border security was the most important issue facing the t- Texas. About a majority said the same thing in February 2018. About a majority said the same thing in February 2011. It doesn't really matter when we look. There's blips, right? When COVID first came out, COVID kind of ran to the bit. top. It dipped a little bit. But honestly, by uh, I was looking this morning. By our uh, June poll of 2020, so not long into COVID, right. more Republicans said that immigration and border security was the most important issue facing the state than said COVID. Right. It took two two surveys and about a couple months for it to retake its sort of place as the top issue. Uh, you know, over this time period, you know, between 2008, 9, and 2022, 23, state spending on border security has increased from 110 million to about three over three billion, technically, right? So about 27. Uh, 270% increase, I guess. Um, I should, there's, you know, I'm going to get to the opinions here. I mean, there is something going on here, which is, look, there are a lot of migrants coming to the border right yes. now. Now, 
how much of that is sort of, you know, a, an effect of lulls in migration due to COVID or consequences of COVID on people's home countries in terms of, you know, spurring more right. people to migrate. Hard to know. But 2022 had the highest recorded sort of migrant encounters on the U.S.-Mexico border on record, about 1.66 million. 2022 looks like it should surpass that, you know, but within the same uh, range. There were similar surges in the 80s and in the 90s. So this is not like unprecedented or historical. It's been this increase in migrants each sort of year has been taking place over multiple administrations. This has been an ongoing thing. I only mention that because I think, you know, whereas, you know, about a majority of Republicans say that immigration border security is the number one issue facing the state. It's like no Democrats. Two like percent yeah. of Democrats, and this isn't to say that it, you know Democrats don't think this is an issue. It's the salience of the issue. It's the importance of it. But I think Democrats might be quick to kind of dismiss the fact that like we are at you know a historical peak in terms of right. the number of migrants coming to the border. I think that has to be acknowledged. So you know, but in this context, even though the state has you know extreme you know expanded the spending significantly, fifty to sixty percent of Republican voters say the state spends too little on border security. Only about one in 10 say the state spends too much. The spending that the state has continued to increase has had no impact on these opinions. Immigration is a tough issue. There are multiple dimensions, but it doesn't really matter when we look at Republican voters in the state. Three quarters, uh, or I'm sorry, two thirds say that, you know, we look at that we allow too many legal immigrants into the country. So two thirds, so about 66%, consistently say that we're doing too much in terms of letting legal immigrants in. So we're not even talking about... You're still thinking about Republicans to be... Just Republicans. I'm only talking about Republicans here. Three quarters say that undocumented immigrants currently in the U.S. should be deported immediately. This is a very consistent finding. And we find majority opposition to refugees settling in Texas who've gone through security clearance processes in multiple, you know, multiple different kind of refugee groups. And we'll talk about that in a separate section here. There's a little bit of a, a difference when we look at children. Right. But only but even even here, I think it's actually the difference is kind of important. And we often say, what's the limit? And we have to remember, I mean, sometimes, especially in this moment where the the family separation policy seems like it's at least I mean, you know, I don't know that it's actually been solved. But as a a public matter, it's in the rearview mirror. That situation. Right. Thus far, it is not. That was an artifact of a few years ago, but certainly illustrated a limit to this. Yeah, and I think what you find in looking at all these survey results in different dimensions of the issue and then over time on immigration, what you see is that, you know, there are there are relative, you know, there there are relative objects here, right? So, you know, slight majority opposition to refugees settling, you know, two-thirds saying that we let too many legal immigrants and three-quarters say we should get all undocumented immigrants out of the country right now. That's sort of, you know, there's right. an escalation from, uh, you know, refugees to legal immigration, to illegal immigration. When we look at children, we see something different or something similar, but at a, a different level, right? So when we ask about DACA, which are children who've been in this country their whole lives, right Right there, we actually said that 46%- And DACA, just to remind oh, right. people, is you know the deferred administration program that allowed people that had been, migrants that had been brought to the country without documentation as minors to stay in the country. Right. You know, as long as they met certain Yeah, they basic, go to college, they join yeah, the military. Do do what conditions. Right. Yeah. Do good. So in February twenty one, forty six percent of Republicans said we should continue DACA. Only forty percent said we should end it. So again, these are for undocumented children who've been in this country their whole life. But and this is a big but in June twenty eighteen, forty six percent supported separating children from their parents at the border. That's a plurality of Republicans, thirty six percent opposed. This was during the Trump administration's policy of separating parents from their children. Right. In April 21, when we asked, well, what, what, 
what should we do with unaccompanied children who arrive because there are these sort of children caravans, right? 59% of Republicans, we gave a lot of options. We said we could turn them away. We could have the government take them in. We could have, you know, charities come take them in. 59% of Republicans said that those unaccompanied children should be turned away. And I make the distinction here in my head for, you know, on the DACA versus some of this other stuff. In the sense that with DACA, you're talking about, again, first of all, pretty much nearly even split in opinion whether to continue it or end it. But that's also talking about children who've been in the U.S. their whole lives. But then we start talking about, you know, again, children arriving at the border first with their parents. We can separate them. Then we say, well, what if they're unaccompanied? Oh, send them back. So across all of this, you say, what do we see? We see an issue that is highly salient. We see an issue that has really, you know, homogenous attitudes among Republicans where, you know, I think somewhere between, you know, at least majorities, but usually two thirds to three quarters hold, you know, similar views or similar directional policy preferences. Right. And then further, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, you know, ultimately, to the extent that immigration keeps becoming a problem because of, you know, the increase in sort of, again, border apprehensions and the increase in number of migrants arriving at the border is a real problem. And policy. attendant disruptions in that in the region. And yeah, right? the attendant disruptions, you know, there's a non-trivial number of Democrats who, you know, disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing on immigration and border security and who, who you know, in some cases, probably approve of some of the things that Greg Abbott is doing, right? Right. Independents tend to look more like Republicans and Democrats on these issues, but still somewhat in the middle. But ultimately, it's a winning issue. For but people. leaning more towards the Republican direction you, in most cases. I right. Think. And yeah. these overall partisan dynamics really benefit Texas Republicans in the sense that with a Democrat in the White House and Democrats in control of Congress, in, you know, again, migrants surging at the border based on historical numbers and Republicans in control of Texas, the biggest border state. There's a natural sort of benefit to to playing the partisan dynamics that have, you know, so far benefited you when you are the party of the majority of voters in the state. And this is not the first time that we've seen this, right. you know, in in the last couple of decades. I mean, it's it's been interesting to think about comparing where we are right now in year two of the Biden administration and a Democrat in the White House with where we were in year two around 2010 with a Democrat in the White House when Barack Obama was president, when we saw not identical, but very similar, pretty similar, but pretty similar dynamics. Yeah. And I think, um, well, I think the point, I mean, I think the point to make here too, is that I, and I think I should this explicitly, we already said the word durability here, but like every result that I just kind of mentioned, this is not from asking it once last year. Almost all of these are basically results we've seen on items that we've probably asked five to eight times over the course of somewhere between four and the last 12 years. Right. And, and to do a little you know, hinting here, I guess, you know, we'll have, you know, a, a pretty good set of new results on this in the near future mm-hmm. um, from a UT Texas Politics Project poll that's in the hopper right now. Um, and so I think at some point we're going to have to bite the bullet and put together some trend graphics, another kind of trend page yeah. on immigration like we have on some of the other some of the other data that we have on the site. So There'll be updates on a lot of this, and it's spoiler alert: we're not seeing any big disruptions in the patterns Josh was just talking about. Um, if anything, in some cases, maybe I don't want us to go too far out, too strongly say the opposite. But some of these are really holding up and 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 aggravated, or you know, exactly you know, sort of amplified. I think by the current by the Fire current it, circumstance. Yeah. So you talked about durability and let's let's talk a little bit about that as you know so we step back how, you know what can we make of this that's not just saying what we've said before in terms of mm-hmm. you know all these patterns you just helpfully kind of summarized and talked about. I mean there's always a structural piece lurking here that's both about immigration and border security but in some ways about things that are much bigger. And I think 
you know, if we look at this as a structural problem, I think we, you know, it is fair to start where you started in a sense by saying, look, this is a durable problem. Yeah. And by durable, you know, you know, I don't even mean the last 10 or even 20 years. Right. I mean, the issue of migration at the southern border of the United States, mm -hmm. whatever we've called it at different times, has been with us for a very long time. And while somebody who's a policy expert, I'm sure, would say, look, there's, you know, there are things that we can point to where there were yeah. attempts to address this. The big Immigration Reform Act that passed during the Reagan administration, you know, constituted kind of a reset. You could even go back further than that to mm -hmm. the 60s and look at immigration legislation there. But certainly, if you step back and look at the broad pattern, you know, the combination of what people that talk about sort of migration and, and immigration talk about is the combination of push and pull factors. Oh, yeah. To put that over simply, you know, to put it too simply, we've not done a lot about those. And if anything, those have been a lot more dynamic in driving this than have attempts to address this at policy. And just, a, you know, yeah. I mean, on the American side, to the extent that you think migration is, you know, an issue of economics and labor. Mm hmm or that the the problem of of criminal flows across the border has been about drugs and gangs you know those problems have not been those 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 pull factors as we as people might put it have not fundamentally shifted in any big way and sometimes we have seen migration flows affected positively or negatively by either a booming economy or you know, an economy that sagged a little bit. I mean, the Obama administration, in fact, got a little bit of a break for a while on immigration because when the economy kind of crashed here right. during the late Bush period after the, the the banking bubble. And on the push factors, the push factors, that is, what is going on in all of the other places right. in the world that produce migrants, you know, have also been subject to a dynamic that has Nothing to do with any of the things we're talking about at this point, frankly. Right. You know, whether it's the long arc of U.S. policy in Central America that has now resulted in many ways in driving such a huge number of people from some of the mm -hmm. uh, Central American countries on the northern end of the isthmus, Guatemala, Nicaragua, uh, El Salvador, mm -hmm. which is where we're seeing a lot of these migrants coming from. Look at Haiti. Look at, you know, even even instability in the southern cone, and even if you want, thinking about this right now, instability in Europe to the extent that you have, in the Middle East, you yeah, know, some flow of, of immigrants that flow through Latin America to come through the southern border rather than migrating through New York. So you've got, you know, those are all huge, complicated things mm -hmm. that for all the talk about policy addressing these things, We've really not done a very good job of managing that. I mean, international pandemic thrown in there. Yeah, you know, the pandemic aside. is you know is a more proximate factor. But you know, what's interesting to me is you could even I was thinking about this as you were talking about the pandemic. And again, the pandemic right now is clearly a a huge factor here. It's obviously what's the the vehicle for Title Forty Two for some people. But even if you were to like take out the pandemic, yeah, you know the. The huge amount of, you know, the the huge, you know, the, the very complicated drivers that send people on their way to the border mm -hmm. and the things that make the, the United States, you know, a rational place for people to want to go, you know, 
are pretty deeply seated and very hard to address in policy. You can send, you know, Kamala Harris to Central America as many times yeah. as you want. Right? Well, I only mentioned the pandemic there just because this is an example of, you know, I mean, I think you laid out some of the sort of the classic kind of structural things, but then I also just started there, there are short term things that happen, right? You know, we call it you know, the just drinking game, exogenous shocks that just affect the system, <laughs> yeah. like the pandemic. But they're also sort of, you know, long term uh, you know, changes in society and people, you know, are now kind of like disruptions to kind of, the, you know, the industrial economy that are taking place everywhere that like are just that are right. manifesting themselves right now and sort of in these kinds of patterns and ways that we're even still just kind of figuring out. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, we spent a, to- a, you know, a decade or two talking or a decade and a half, probably at its peak, talking about how great globalization was and, mm-hmm. you know, the increased flow of people, services, goods across borders. Um we're kind of having a sour moment with that right now well, but, but, in a lot of ways. But, I mean, that is the context of this is kind of... But I think that is, I mean, that is the context of this, yeah. right? I mean, in some ways, I think, is what you're saying is that, you know, we had this experiment with uh, globalization. I think, you know, right now we're in a bit of a retrenchment from that, clearly. And that's been going on for a number of years, right? I mean, I think, you know, the one thing about 2016 that was funny was, like, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump talking about trade, not so... Yeah, I mean, Different, for, right? for a while it was, you know, you could think of it as as backlash. I mean, we'll have to remember, I mean, the the early, you know, the Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. you know, candidacy, um, presidential candidacy in in 1996. Right. Well, no generation owns backlash. Right. right. Well, I mean, but as I say, you know, the backlash to global, but, but what was initially a backlash to globalization that appeared at the time was just sort of almost a residual thing getting bowled over by this massive, the massive momentum and, the, and frankly, the embrace of this by elites. Well, should we, let's talk about this conflict, right? right. Cause so we're, yeah. let's talk about how this conflict manifests itself in Texas a little bit in some of the data sure. we have. Right. Right. So, you know, ultimately I mean, one interesting thing in all this is, you know, Texas is, is a state obviously is, is, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it's unique. I mean, I think any Texan would say that, but I think when I mean that, what I'd say is Texas has a big enough economy that you could consider it a global player on its own in yeah. a lot of cases. It's right? an economy that's very internationally integrated. It's an internationally integrated economy. And I mean, we know that, uh, you know, and it's a very, and it's an incredibly diverse state. It's one of the most diverse states in the country. And ultimately, you know, it's a state that attracts a lot of people from a lot of places. However, and again, we're focusing on Republican attitudes. The reason we're focusing on Republican attitudes is because Republicans are in the majority party. In, They're driving in the state. policy. They're in driving the state. policy in the states. So it's not to pick; it's to point out where this is all coming from. Some of these underlying pieces. So, an, an item we've, and again, these are all items we've asked multiple times. So I'm just usually looking at the most recent. You know, we asked whether increasing racial and ethnic diversity in Texas. Uh, is a cause for optimism or a cause for concern. In August of last year, 43% of Republicans said it was a cause for concern. 22% said a cause for optimism. And the 35% said, I don't know. Right. I mean, I think the, that's one of the, you know, sometimes we talk about whether I don't know response is a substantive response. This is a substantive response in some ways. Right. Well, I, you, know, you know, what I would say it's is- It's a mix, actually. It, it's, but it's a meaningful response, It's a meaningful right? response. It, it, you know, I, I don't think you're going out too far on a limb to read that as- to group that as a not positive response. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would say this. I would doubt that many of that thirty-five percent is going to jump into the optimism camp soon. Right. But okay. In October uh, of in October of twenty nineteen, sixty-seven percent of Republicans said that newcomers from other countries threaten traditional American uh, customs and values. Yeah, that's an that's an important one. I often forget about. Hmm. You know, we know that's again. This is about people coming here, about the changing nature of Texas. But when we look again, again, sort of nativism is in both directions. So when we ask uh, whether or not the U.S. would basically be better off 
if we just withdrew from the rest of the world's problems, essentially. Republicans have been consistently split on this issue yeah. in our polling, going back quite a ways about a slight plurality say that actually we should probably not be involved in the rest of the world, slightly less say that we still should. Uh, but ultimately, you know, this is a Democrats are a lot less split on this. Democrats are much more, you know, willing to endorse the idea that the U.S. has to play a role in the world. Right. And then last, you know, I already mentioned this, but, you know, we have majority opposition to resettling refugees in Texas who've gone through security processes. This is true whether we talk about generally. This is true whether we talk about specific groups, although just to make a tease, there may be one group for whom a majority of Republicans is in favor of resettling right. those refugees. But there, and, something... not, and not to be too cagey about this. I mean, in the past, we asked about relocating refugees from Syria, Syria. during the Syrian conflict, mm -hmm. the Syrian civil war. And we've asked about it more generally. And then, yes. And then we've asked about... You know, how comfortable people are with Texas accepting refugees and with their communities accepting refugees. Right. So, I mean, what would you know, what would you call I mean, I, I'm not good at these terms. You're much more of a theory guy, I think, than I am. So, you know, I mean, is, would you class these together sort of as nativist? I mean, well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there there are some interesting Venn diagrams here that we've yet to work out, I yeah, think, and, and, that are, and, are, and that are widely discussed. I mean, I, I think when you look at a, you know, a, particularly a few of those results that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, not just the, I mean, I, I think for a long time we looked at the the heat check question on immediate um, illegal immigration, uh, uh, illegal immigrants being deported right away, and there was always some. I mean. You know the cognitive, you know the the, the predispositions that you bring to that question could plausibly be about law and order as well as yeah. um, attitudes towards immigrants. But I think when you look at that in conjunction with the stability of the results that we see about legal immigration. Refugees. And, and about refugees and about some of these other things that you raise here. You know, y you have to look at this as something that is defensively called nativism, which is, a, you know, an embrace for a kind of native-born blood and soil, dare I say, kind of conception of the good and of citizenship and of of what you want, what, what people want the culture to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've seen that grow stronger in the Republican Party. You know, and I want to point out something here that I think is really important, which is this is not just a view among white people. No. So just so you know, you know, if you were to look at all of these opinion, like I say, you know, what's your prior probability here? Yeah. So when we talk about uh, Hispanic attitudes in Texas among registered voters specifically, generally, you know, if you were to say, you know, if you were to basically say, here's an issue and it's got a, a pretty, you know, pretty normal partisan split, you know, Republicans line up on one side, Democrats line up on the other. And it's an issue that I would suspect people would kind of know more enough about to kind of put themselves on one side or the other. If I know that and then you say, OK, where how are Hispanics going to split on this issue? I would say somewhere between 60-40 and 70-30 to the Democratic side of the position. Right. Right? But, but the, the minority there is non-trivial. The minority there is non-trivial. When you say- by, by a long shot. And I think, you know, this is an ongoing discussion we've talked about on this podcast, you know, but when you talk to, you know, let's say, a, a, you know, a quote-unquote Hispanic person living in a, a rural South Texas county who has been living here for four or five generations- that's a culture. That's part of a culture here that we're still actually talking about when we're talking about yeah. this nativism, we're talking about these issues. And so it's not as though this is like a purely white thing, although it's not not a part of it, right? Right. Well, and again, I think that's right. I mean, it's, you know, it's tricky because 
there is look there is an overlap between these things. I mean, there is a now very visible white nationalist movement mm-hmm. and and a bo- and it's not even just a movement. There is a body of white nationalist thought, activision, uh, activation, social, you know, the best thing to call it is a social identity. Yeah. Right, that is now politically meaningful in a way that it was not 10 years ago. I would say it was not even five years ago. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's what's interesting. So, I mean, this kind of gets to the other piece of the attitude set is I would kind of break it out, right? So there are these immigration attitudes on the one hand. I think, you know, the point you made, I'm just going to reiterate because I think it was so, it's so spot on, which is it would be one thing if we were just talking about illegal immigration, but we see it everywhere. We see it talking about just like, you know, again, children showing up at the border alone. We see it with refugees. We see it with right. illegal immigration. So there's that. There's this question of sort of nativism, this idea of a changing underlying culture and the people who are contributing yes. to it and also our orientation to the world as a piece of this. And then there's this other piece to this, which is what I'm, I'm kind of clustering as hierarchy. And I'm borrowing this yeah. from our colleague, Eric McDaniel, who sort of introduced me to the concept here. But this idea of sort of, you know, we call it, you know, a racial, uh, a racial gender, gender hierarchy. So it's not just about, you know, basically what is the order of, you know, sort of the, you know, the races in terms of right. what we think about as the hierarchy of society. Yeah. Know? How racial identity informs, you know, social status and social power. Right. But also how gender informs that. So. Right. OK. So in October 2020, we asked a series of three state basically question, you know, statements that you can agree with or disagree with. Uh, you could completely agree, mostly agree, mostly, you know, or some, you know, mostly disagree, completely disagree. And the statements were to this effect. Right. Uh, you know, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Efforts to increase diversity almost always come at the expense of whites. That was the first statement. Another statement was society as a whole has become too soft and feminine. And number three, God has granted the U.S. a special role in human history. That's important. I'll get back to this. Anyway, on the first one, 69% of Republicans agree that efforts to increase diversity almost always come at the expense of whites. 81% that society as a whole has become a lot, uh, has become too soft and feminine. 78% that God has granted the U.S. a special role in human history. If we take a step back, right, to uh, June 2020 and June 19 and kind of think about what was going on, right, in those areas we see the Me Too movement come up first. Right. And we see the Black Lives Matter movement really come to the fore in that period. And these are both, you know, two groups that were pushing back against, I think, you know, traditional conceptions of the hierarchy. You know, the reason that kind of that last one, you know, God has granted a special role and, you know, for the U.S. and human history, religion reinforces a lot of these hierarchies. It has traditionally. I think a lot of religions traditionally, a lot of traditional religions certainly reinforce the idea of a male dominated kind of household as kind of the archetype. And certainly religion has been mobilized to, to establish racial hierarchies repeatedly and widely. So the fact that, you know, these sort of two movements come along in 2019 and 2020 and say, hey, we're kind of pushing back on the hierarchy and we're trying to make light of it. Well, 76 percent of Republicans had an unfavorable view of Black Lives Matter, uh, about 60 percent very unfavorable. 63 percent had an unfavorable view of the Me Too movement during that period. Uh, In October 18, when we asked, you know, who faces more discrimination in society, men or women, the plurality of Republicans, 43 percent said men, 33 percent said women. And in June 2020, that's another word that don't knows really count. Yeah. And then in June 2020, we said, you know, how much discrimination does each, each of these groups face in society? Uh, you know, a lot. Some among Republicans, 34 percent said Christians face a lot of discrimination in society. Twenty four percent said white people. Fourteen percent said black people. Fourteen percent said transgender uh, people. And only eight percent said that of Hispanic people. So when we ask who is, faces the most discrimination in society in that poll, 28% of Republicans said Christians, 17% said whites, 16% said African-Americans. And so you bring that together 
And you have, I think, both an embrace of, you know, a, a traditional, I think, a tr you know, a, a historically well-established sort of traditional social structure, a racial hierarchy that is, you know, I think been very much well-established. I mean, that's a whole other path to go down here, right? right? Um, but you also have, you know, I think in the last five years, movements that have been, you know, I think very overtly trying to challenge that. You know, I think in a media environment and landscape where, you know, this information is unavoidable, framed in multiple ways, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, I think amongst a group, you know, again, I think this was even, we went back further. These attitudes existed before Black Lives Matter and Me Too. So these Republican attitudes on discrimination existed when we measured them right. even earlier. And so when you look at that, you know, you have a group that says, well, actually, we're the ones being discriminated against, but we're being told something else. This gets to the whole thing. Even talking about this is really difficult. I mean, like, yeah. from well, our, Well, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, there's been a lot written recently about You know, trying to sort of, in a, in a sense, pose the subjective position of, you know, the groups that are holding these attitudes, which are very widespread, right? And, and how you might sort of think about that. And, you know, look, on one hand, if you are somebody who, and it doesn't, almost doesn't really matter why, whatever, because of your social identity, because of, you know, whatever, however you want to attribute this, that looks out and might reply to like a, a common national polling question that I don't think we've asked before. Mm -hmm. You might remember that we have, but I don't think so, which is something like, you know, do you think attempts to remedy discrimination have gone too far? Yeah. Right. Common way of we, asking that. We have something that. similar to that, which was basically, you know, during Black Lives Matter, you know, basically, do you think the attention to sort right. of, you know, is going to, do you think all the attention to sort of these racial issues are going to help race, rela race relations right. and make things worse or have no effect? And the plurality of Republicans said, well, they're going to make same things worse. The second most uh, common response, have no effect. And only, you know, I think less than probably one in five said it'll make it better. Right. And so from that position, you kind of see this. So if you're in a position where you feel like either consciously subconsciously as a predisposition as an active position that traditional social relationships that we're calling you know including these hierarchies are worth preserving then you're seeing them under siege by objectively changing demographics by legal changes and by something we you know you mentioned in the in the in the battery and these new social identities right whether it's more aggressively asserted or more you know more centrally asserted racial and ethnic identities sexual and gender identities from women to yeah. you know more you know, non-binary identity and on top of that being uh you know sort of put in front of you by a media that is you know quickly media and I also say corporate elites who are quickly sort of much more quickly responding to these changes in society because of customers both right? customers and employees customers and employees sure and shareholders right yeah and then also I mean, you think and then you add in and then you know you have when you have democrats in charge of washington as an example right really in charge of really any government you know the democratic party is having a really tough time kind of talking through these issues and how far they go and how quickly they embrace right. these changes i mean this is an ongoing discussion in democratic politics which is part of why it's also still, you know, an issue that, I mean, you know, going back to the beginning, like brass tax politics is great for Republicans in a sense that there's, you know, this strong homogeneity of views, the kind of overlapping Venn diagram of things that really create very little boundaries. Right. You know, in terms of what you can say and do. But on the other hand, it's not as though it's so easy for Democrats to come in and say, oh, right. but, you know, you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't say that or, you know, this that's is where wrong. the relatively homogenous attitudes among Republicans. I mean, a lot of those majorities you're talking about or pluralities are significant. 
Right. Yeah. And and likely to continue to move. And so so I guess the point here to wind up is to step back and kind of say, you know, we talk a lot about immigration and border security and the proximate politics of the situation. Mm-hmm. I think if you step back and and plug this into a lot of the broader and biggest and most important questions in American politics and that have implications for state politics, there are big structural things going on about these fundamental cultural politics that are being exacerbated in some ways or fueled by institutional factors that we haven't even talked about. I mean, implicit in what we're talking about is the ideological demographic sorting of the parties and those reinforcing cleavages on that that are making this even harder to to manage, but also harder to understand. And I, I one of the reasons I kind of wanted to do this in the podcast today, because I thought we needed to pause and kind of put this in a little bit, in a, in a broader context. And I think this broader context subsumes a lot of the things that we are going to see going on, that we're already seeing going on in the 2022 campaign. I mean, this notion of this sense of you know the disruption of hierarchy and the different re- reactions to it and the rea- and the the integration of new social and political identities into th- the political system I and mean, into even electoral politics and a and a very you know a very I'm not sure what the right adjective is i mean that that gets what i want to say contentious but also a, a really transformed mood of social discourse in the week where everybody's talking about Elon Musk buying Twitter or buying Twitter. All of this really just, and it's the, just vibrating. And right? on the heels of the week and on the heels of a week in which Governor Abbott was talking about invasions. Right. Exactly. Which we didn't even mention. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I think we need to kind of try to keep an eye on this a little bit more. And it's just good for people to listen to this, to for us to flag, you know, we're kind of thinking about these things. We've got a lot of data on this. And I do want to, once we get into some, you know, some lulls in the electoral cycle, return to some of these questions. Um, because they're lurking beneath a lot of the topics we choose anyway. Yeah. And and I think because we talk a lot about the politics of the moment, some of these larger, big structural questions we wind up setting aside or putting a pin in. But that, you know, that 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 pin board is getting pretty crowded with these. things. Well, and I think also, I mean, if you, I mean, you think about the things that we're talking about here, I mean, these are these are hard issues to discuss. Yeah. I mean, I'll say, I mean, as a, as a professional who looks at this stuff all the time, these are hard issues to discuss. And I think one of the things that I think, you know, is, is so difficult in in politics is the fact that, you know, and this is true in life. Right. I mean, everybody sort of thinks that they're overly representative of everybody else. You know, that like <laughs> yeah. my views are the most common views. And one of the great things about being a pollster, maybe one of the only great things about being a pollster <laughs> Is the fact that like I just know how many people will disagree me on it with me on any given issue, right? And to some degree, you know, I think that brings a certain you know amount of I think humility to the process because you have to understand that. Now, most people don't really, I think, take the time to consider that. And so, what I think is, is that you know, when you're kind of embracing these discussions about you know, okay, what are the what you know, we're talking about? You know, big changes that are ongoing and kind of the structural hierarchies of society and. You know, people are reacting to these in various ways. I mean, you know, to be a little bit, you know, to not automatically start calling everybody a racist on the one hand and to kind of step back and say, hey, you know, <laughs> regardless of someone's color, skin color, position, whatever, if they had been living their whole lives in a position of relative privilege and maybe didn't even know it and someone came to them and said, by the way, you don't deserve this, they're not going to react well. 
You yeah. know, I mean, they're just not going to react well. Now, this is now again, the flip side of this is I'm not trying to be an apologist for anybody. Right. And so I think, you know, it's tough. You know, I think even as someone trying to really, you know, get into these issues and to kind of really uncover a little bit more of what's going on here to do this in a way that I think, you know, treats everybody you know, fairly, but also treating everybody fairly yeah. means, you know, these sort of attitudes that I think, you know, a lot of people would say are, you know, pretty anachronistic to where we are in this time and space. It's like, yeah, but right. they're also extremely widespread. So we have to acknowledge that before we can kind of even really begin to discuss this in a serious way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a nice way of posing the dilemma that, you know, again, you look at these and it's like, well, this seems pretty anachronistic. Yeah. But you know, but it's but by definition, it isn't. But it's, it's also <laughs> right. It also seems pretty, pretty present right now. Yeah, and and it, and it underlines, I think, one of the. You know, there's kind of a meta difficulty here, which is that all of the things we're talking about have been internalized in the current political dynamic by you know people that are you know political entrepreneurs and. And have figured out a way to kind of accommodate the discomfort and, and exploit mm-hmm. the discomfort you're yeah. talking about. But it, I mean, I think that, you know, that's driving, frankly, you know, the elevation of critical race theory. Absolutely. The fact that, you know, right now somebody, you know, I, I, I would have zero, you know, I have zero doubt that if there are people that you could play this conversation to that would just say, oh, yeah, that's just that's this is what I mean by critical race theory at work, because we're talking about the play of race and social identity as a structural feature. <laughs> I can't pick that up <laughs> with, with the time we have left. Right. There's... But, I, you know, I mean, that. but that's part of what's going on here is that the conversation is inherently difficult. The analysis is inherently difficult. Mm-hmm. The social discussion and social politics are inherently difficult. And we're going in a direction that makes the discourse is in a direction right now that makes that conversation even harder yeah. because of the terms that the debate are taking on, right? And, and look, you know, I mean, you could also argue, I mean, I, I there's a false parity here that we I should probably just cut this off now. But, you know, I, and I could understand that, you know, people will look at the left and see excesses and the whole idea of, you know, what has yeah. now become known as cancel culture, et cetera. Yeah. There is a dynamic. culture, cancel culture. Well, this is, but this is the thing. I was thinking, you know, as you're talking about that, you know, trying to bring broader context to this, it's hard for me not to think about uh, the late 60s, right? And I mean, in particular, I was thinking, you know, if you read some of the history, you know, you always think about like, oh, the, right, the, great, the late 60s was this huge disruption in society, right? Um, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, kind of similar to what we're talking about now, where, you know, social structures were changing, they were questioning, you know, again, hierarchies, things like that. And everybody kind of, you know, tends to associate that with sort of the counterculture that kind of came out of that, uh, you know, peace, love and rock and roll. And it's like, and also like a bunch of religious fundamentalism, right, which people forget about. And so there's a sort of thing where, you know, to the extent that this thing, you know, this thing is happening, you know, in society, yeah, like, you know, a lot of people like you are going to react in a similar way. And a lot of people not like you are going to react in a different way. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're kind of seeing something like that going on right now. And the truth is, I mean, even within those groups, I think there's a lot of trying to figure out, you know, how overall are we reacting to this? And you see that on the Democratic side in the sense of how far do we go with cancel culture? How woke can we be? You know, is that even should we be, you know, on and on? And on the Republican side... You know, you've got this like, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it's, it's weird. I mean, this sort of a, another sort of big conversation we're not having that we talk about is like, what does it mean to be a conservative right now? And yeah. I said this a while ago on the podcast about some of the the transgender sports and school stuff is sort of an unpopular potential view. But I agree. But I'll, I'll say it again with all this stuff, which is there's an aspect of this, which is the most traditionally conservative 
yeah. thing, you just definitionally, which is they're trying to maintain the the social, hi, you know, the social hierarchy, whatever elements go into it, that has existed for a number of years. And if anything, they're seeing a, a, a very quick shift away from it. Right. And so we're seeing a lot of policy to try to move back. And it manifests in a lot of different places, right? It's manifesting in the schools. It's manifesting in immigration policy. It's manifesting in public safety, right? And on and on. I'm sure I'm missing some. So it's, you know, it's an ongoing discussion that we do want to keep an eye on because there is some big picture stuff happening here. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, the the role of this, you know, the sense of, you know, the hierarchy, you know, accepted social hierarchies or previous social hierarchies being under siege, you know, uh, this is something else we've mentioned, another thing in passing in here, but it does come up, you know, you're right, it's attendant to this is, you know, what is liberalism and progressivism? But in this moment, I think the more pregnant question is, what is conservatism right now? And is there now something that is... uh, more fairly called reactionary. I mean, as you're talking about, there are people that are, you know, I mean, there's there's a difference between saying we're moving too fast and we should go backwards. And I think the we should go backwards momentum has gotten more significant. And that is, to my mind, by definition, reactionary. That's not standing in front of thwart history and saying stop, right? That's saying stop and back it up. It's pushing the boulder back down the hill. Right, yeah. And that's, right, and, and that metaphor, I think, is actually, I mean, it's a natural advantage, I think, that you have in that position that you're trying to, rolling back change, arguably, well, in so a lot of circumstances, is going to be easier than continuing to push it. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the, I mean, we got to end this. But it comes but, to social But change. I'll say, I mean, I, I agree with that. I'm thinking, you know, just, I love to torture analogies, but it's like, you know, that boulder has been pushed up the hill and it's like a bunch of people made businesses down there. They've established little stores yeah. and shops and stuff. So like the idea that the boulder can just kind of roll back down the hill and there's not going to be like a lot of friction along the way. Right. And destruction and, and, and new, new forms of resistance. Right. Exactly. So I think with that, I'm going to thank Josh for being here. That was a, I think, I think we kind of did some of what we wanted to do here today. <laughs> um, as we've hinted at, keep an eye out. We will have new polling data out uh, pretty soon after this podcast. Not immediately, depending on when you're listening, but pretty soon. So keep an eye out for a new UT Texas Politics Project poll, and we will be back uh, next week um, probably talking about that a little bit. So thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at UT Austin. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can find data we've referenced today and much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That is texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 